Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Holiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled with them skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns in fine twine linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your salvation, uh, your rescue of each of us from slavery, uh, your giving us eternal life. Um, and we're also thankful that that life that you give us includes the investment in us of spiritual gifts, uh, that we have agency and power and intelligence and wisdom, each and every one of us in our own way, to glorify you, uh, to delight in you, to create and build and grow um, and invite others uh, into your presence. And so I pray that we would all be encouraged this morning, uh, that we would be humbled and grateful and excited uh, at the prospect that uh, the eternal God invites us to be co-creators with him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Someone was asking me this week at Pancakes um, about New Year's resolutions and if it was just an East Coast thing. Uh, he grew up hearing about New Year's resolutions um, every year when they lived back East, but hadn't heard a peep since moving to San Francisco. Um, and I'm actually curious, so I'm, I'm from Florida, is it an East Coast thing, or is that something that you Californians grew up talking about New Year's resolutions? Yeah, it seems like that. Um, I like his theory better than mine, right? Um, I don't think resolutions are an East Coast thing. I think it's a self-control thing, and I've just never had it, right? And so, like, but I think I want to start using his story. It's like, well, you know, we're on the West Coast, and so that's why tonight I'll be eating cookies and looking at Instagram for hours, right? Um, to be honest, though, I have spent many New Year's Days crafting elaborate resolutions, uh, and they were beautiful resolutions. You can ask Maggie about how beautiful they were, um, but that was the problem, though, is they were so beautiful. They were too beautiful for me, right? Um, I was severely underqualified for my own New Year's resolutions, and there wasn't any pathway for me to get there, so I would... I would I mean, it's embarrassing. I would literally spend, I mean, it's one of those things where maybe that'll happen in heaven, the great white throne is like, and you spent this many hours on planning things that you did not do. Um, and so that was so much of the case, that, but there wasn't a pathway, there wasn't any breathing room or opportunity for growth. I was just really expecting myself to suddenly be different 
at 40 years than I was in the first 39 years of my life. Um, but I've since learned that the, that doesn't work. And so instead, I have abandoned resolutions. Um, they need to be more than an idea. They need to be embodied. They need time and they need space. In my experience, spiritual gift conversations can go a lot like that as well, right? Where I don't know about you, but I can invest a lot of time in thinking about my own spiritual gifts and really come up with some really insightful and helpful things. But then they sort of just sit in a folder as life comes back to normal, and, and I haven't given them the proper space uh, to breathe. Um, they haven't been given the time to be embodied. And so our hope for this series, uh, this time spent in spiritual gifts, is that that doesn't happen, that we spend a lot of time and hours in conversation, um, but then they aren't uh, put into practice in some way. Our text this morning is from the end of the book of Exodus, when God instructs the people of Israel to build the tabernacle, a sacred space for God to dwell with them. It's a long section of Exodus. Um, it's very detailed. Uh, the section on the tabernacle begins in Exodus 25, uh, verses 1 through 9. Uh, so he's given them the law, and then in, in 25, he said, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. We forget about, or I forget about the tabernacle in Exodus, but it is a significant chunk of the book. Um, when I think about the book of Exodus, I usually think about freedom from slavery, right? Delivery, deliverance from Pharaoh, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. That's chapters 1 through 18. And then in chapters 19 through 24, you have the book of the covenant. Um, we remember the law. That's where we get the Ten Commandments. That's where the covenant begins, all the unique case law um, that goes on. But Exodus is 40 chapters long, and there's a lot of chapters, a lot of detail. And chapters 25 through 40, a full third of the book of Exodus is devoted to the building of the tabernacle, um, along with the golden calf, which is a big part of that. And so what does that teach us? Uh, what does that say about me? Both the fact of the tabernacle's importance, that it's very important, um, but also how prone I am to forget about it that it's not something that comes to mind when I think about the book of Exodus. Well, one thing it teaches me, it reminds me, is that it's not enough for humanity to be redeemed from slavery. Uh, that is not the only thing that's important. It's not enough for them to enter into a covenant with God, even to be declared a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Uh, that's Exodus 19, that's 1 Peter 2. But that's not enough. It's also not enough for Israel to receive and obey the Ten Commandments, to download a bunch of rules about how God wants them to order uh, their life together. 
But if I'm honest, that is where I tend to stop when I think about redemption and when I think about faith, right? I, I think about redemption and rules, uh, but that's not where God stops. The people of God also need a space. They need a sacred space. God wants a sacred space. And so Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. In fact, it's this space which is the culmination. It is the reason for Israel's Exodus story. It is what he is driving towards. Exodus 29, 43 to 46, in this tabernacle section, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is why God rescued Israel. It's why he rescues us. God's presence with humanity is what the whole Bible is driving towards. And so if we skip way ahead to Revelation 21, the vision of John, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. One day, Revelation tells us there will be no tabernacle or temple because God himself will live on earth in the new Jerusalem unmediated. That's what redemption is aiming towards. In the meantime, though, between Christ's first and second coming, God's presence is still important to God's people. We still need him to dwell with us. We still need a spiritual space. This is what our life together is for. Uh, because of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we are the tabernacle. And so Paul regularly identifies us as the temple of God. The church, both collectively and individually, is the sacred place where God's presence on earth is mediated. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You yourselves, we ourselves are the temple of God on earth. 1 Peter 2, which we uh, taught through last year, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we are the tabernacle of God. When we gather, we are that sacred space, the embodiment of the presence of God on earth. Exodus teaches us that God is not a set it and forget it kind of God. Uh, redemption's not enough. Rules are not enough. God wants to be with us today, now, and forever. Forever will be better uh, when the earth is made new again, but he wants to be with us now too. And if we forget to make space for him, we forget the very reason that we were saved in the first place. The joy that was offered to us by Jesus is God with us, to live with God and God with us. 
Uh, Speaking to the purpose of the tabernacle, Peter Enns writes, In the midst of a fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation, a building project that is nothing less than a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle, therefore, is laden with redemptive significance, not just because of the sacrifices and offerings within its walls, but simply because of what it is, a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. And that is just as much a description of the church's purpose. When we gather together, where two or three are gathered, God is with us. A piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. What does this have to do with spiritual gifts? This is their purpose. God gives us gifts to make room for his presence. That is why we are gifted, to make room for him to be, for ourselves, to be with us, for each other, for the world. Gifts are given to us by the Spirit so that we might create space for God to be among us. Going back to Exodus, something noteworthy about the tabernacle is how God invites the people to build it. Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, God has done everything. They have done virtually nothing. He is the principal actor in the story. So God rescued them from slavery. He brought the plagues. He turned the heart of Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea. He fed them in the wilderness. He established the covenant. He gave them the Ten Commandments. But then now it's the people who build the sanctuary. With his detailed instruction, for sure, he gives them elaborate instructions But the temple is to be built first with their freely given contributions. So he doesn't force them to give up their gold and silver and spices and the rest. They are told to give if and only if their heart moves them. They are not slaves. That's how Pharaoh rules, not God. And so he asks for free will contributions. Um, The temple is to be built by contributions. But just as important, the temple is to be built by their own hands. And this was actually exceptional in the stories of temples um, uh, in the ancient Near East, which were rumored to be built by the gods. And in this case, that is not the vision of the temple. Um, And so they're to build the temple with their own hands. It's God's vision. It's his idea, which he shares with Moses in a lot of detail, but not exhaustive detail. There is still much to be figured out by the workers on how to achieve God's vision. And this is actually, to my mind, uh, correct me later if I'm wrong, but this, this feels to be the very first discussion of spiritual gifts in the Bible. Exodus 31, one through six, the first time it comes up, the Lord said to Moses, in a parallel passage to what Ryan read, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamech, 
of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Later in Exodus 35, women artisans are highlighted who help to fashion the fabrics and curtains. Exodus 35, 25, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. It's a remarkable story how exciting this must have been for Bezalel and Aholiab. We have no idea who they are until this moment. These were men who had been born into obscurity, born into slavery. That's all they had known. You know, Israel had been slaves for 400 years. That means they were born into slavery. And they had only spent their strength mindlessly placing brick on brick. That's what they had done. And now God Almighty, Yahweh, calls them out of a crowd of hundreds of thousands, calls them forward, names the supernatural gifting that has thus far been dormant inside of them. And we don't really know the context. Were the gifts even unknown to them? Or had they known it but just never been recognized, never been given a sense of purpose and agency, given freedom and resources to live out their God-given gifts? Well, not anymore. God tells Moses, and Moses announces to the people, these two men, they have been filled with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Again, former slaves whose only experience thus far was turning dust to brick. Now summoned to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, cutting gemstones, carving wood. And not just them. Exodus 36 invites anyone with skill and desire. That's what, it, that's what was required. Exodus 36, 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. I was excited to center this morning on this story because we have a lot of creative people here at Citizens. People involved in design and construction, architecture, both physical and digital, building, right? Building systems in whose mind the Lord has put great skill. And I hope this story encourages you that Bezalel and Aholiab are sort of patron saints for you in Scripture. Because in them, cleverness and creativity are invited to contribute to God's vision of a meeting space between him and his people. And while there is, admittedly, a lot of detail in these chapters where there's measurements, it's very precise um, in terms of the Eden uh, model that God envisions for the tabernacle. It's a lot of detail, but there's still a lot that has to be figured out, right? When you actually assemble all of the material. As somebody who didn't have access to gold and silver and jewels and cutting gems, like that wasn't their job before now. And so they have to figure it out. So for example, in Exodus 26, God says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. 
And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. This is God's vision, um, the colors capturing the night sky and the cherubim, the um, angels and spirits of heaven. But what shade of blue, right? We don't, we don't know what shade of blue. How deep? How purple? How scarlet? How do you work those colors together? The bases are silver overlay. Are they square? Are they round? Like, who knows? Like, they had to sort of figure out how to, how to go about it. What do the cherubim look like? I'm sure that there's uh, they're kind of like snaky lion sort of creatures, but like what specifically did they look like? How big would you put them on the curtains? How many would you have? These were all things that the artists and creatives, and they had to design. The men and women had to figure out, man, what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? What am I going to do to capture God's vision? And so Bezalel and Aholiab and the other artists are asked to meaningfully contribute to God's vision. And so Leon Cass, the Jewish humanist, writes, the true artist is God's divinely inspired co-creator, not a freelancer seeking fame for himself. The artists are God's prophets for the eyes. The beauty they cultivate becomes the skin of the good and the holy, and they help complete God's creation by producing for it the hallowed place where man and God may meet and know each other. We have Again, a lot of creative people here at Citizens, we've been blessed in that way in whose mind the Lord has put skill. And so I, I hope you feel dignity and that we dignify you in that. I hope this story encourages you with your creative knowledge and ability, you have the opportunity to clothe the good and the holy, to be prophets for the eyes. I love that phrase holding a mirror to the world that reflects both its brokenness and its deeper dignity, showing the world who God is and what he is like. And our, our world so badly needs your spirit-awakened knowledge and skills. I was talking with um, a friend at Pancakes who draws these really hyper-realistic uh, pencil sketches of uh, portraits of people, and it was really wonderful to hear him talk about his process and how he would get to know um, Janis Joplin. So he has this really wild picture of Janis Joplin that's so real, um, looks like a photo, but him talking about the time that he spent with her, and, and because it's hyper-real, really looking closely at the like stress and strain on her face. That's like, it's the like classic photo of her sort of smiling with the big glasses on. You would recognize the picture immediately in her. But his time spent with her in that process like exposed a lot more. It, it was a, it, it truly, he was a, a prophet for the eyes. Um, speaking to the pain that Janis Joplin went through that led to her ultimate death. Um, that was underneath the big smile and the big laugh. Our world needs artists. Madeline Lee Engle writes, art does not reproduce the visible, rather it makes visible. It is not then at its best a mirror, but an icon. It takes the chaos in which we live and shows us structure and pattern, not the structure of conformity which imprisons, but the structure which liberates sets us free to become growing, mature human beings. 
We are a generation which is crying loudly to tear down all structure in order to find freedom and discovering when order is demolished that instead of freedom, we have death. Let's not stop with artists. How, how else can all of our gifts serve as prophets in the city? Uh, nurses and caregivers, you have the power to be prophets for the body, right? Speaking truth about life and death, the result of sin, the hope of eternal life. Accountants are prophets to those tempted by mammon, encouraging us to trust not in chariots or those who ride in them. Parents are prophets to the next generation, pointing to the glory of wisdom, the need for grace. All of us have been gifted in a variety of ways that we might create space for the light of the gospel to shine. Space in our broken world for God in Christ to be felt, seen, heard, tasted, and smelled. This is the very same call of Paul in the New Testament to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To everyone is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. A lot of times in spiritual gift conversations, we get lost in the weeds of what each of these gifts mean, and, and that's an important conversation, but let's not forget what we are gifted for. What is the purpose of our lives to make space to experience the presence of God? Christ has gifted his church to build up the church, collectively and individually, to widen it and deepen it. Ephesians 4, 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Greg Allison writes, through these and other endowments, God equips the church for worship, proclamation, mission, discipleship, caring, and standing for and against the world. So over the next two months in our citizens' communities, be asking yourself, how has God invited me to participate in the great worldwide tabernacle building project that is the kingdom? making space for him to dwell with me and me with him, making space for him to dwell with us together as a church and us with him, and beyond just us, making space for him to dwell in San Francisco that San Francisco might have the opportunity to dwell with him. What gifts, skills, delights have heretofore only been used to make bricks, but when filled with the Spirit have the power to make temples? How can your life, your work, your calling, your presence in the world be a prophet for the senses, a declaration of Christ's lordship over the universe, a room for people to meet with God? And Acts tells us, quoting Joel, that we should expect greater things in the church than the tabernacle. Greater things, greater than even the life of Christ. In the miraculous healings, somebody needs to turn some water into wine. 
right? We, we should expect that, that in the age of the Spirit, the Spirit will pour out on all people, men, women, young, old, slave, free, the ability to prophesy, to dream dreams, miraculous things, to expand the opportunity for God's presence. Some practical considerations in this conversation. I encourage you to not assume you know the answer already, uh, to spend some time thinking about spiritual gifts and, and your own story. Don't assume the answer today is the same as it was a few years back. Maybe you've done this before. You've likely changed since then. Your circumstances have surely changed. And so that means your gifts and especially how those gifts will be lived out is, are going to change. That's okay. In the same way, don't let these conversations stress you out where you feel like you're naming today something like a certain commitment that you're making for the rest of your life. Like it doesn't lock you in forever. And so the spirit is mysterious. And so there's mystery when identifying and employing gifts. Uh, but even though the spirit is mysterious, he's not chaotic. And so you are looking for something. Uh, for some people, like Bezalel, calling is very clear. Like God announced it to the crowd and said, you and you come forward. Um, but for most people, including in Exodus, it's more subtle than that. In Exodus 36, there were two things present um, in those who came forward to build the tabernacle. First, skill and intelligence. Uh, they had been given skill and intelligence, competency, and second, desire. Um, both of those things were present in the people that came forward to build the temple. And so maybe you have the skill, but not the desire. And so you need to ask, just ask the Lord, like, what's behind that? What, why is that the case? Ask the Lord to stir up desire in you. Maybe you have desire and not the skill. And so you need to ask the Lord for opportunities to build that skill. Um, find yourself a Bezalel and a Holiab, who were not only gifted to do the work, but Exodus says that they were gifted to teach others to do the work, right? And so find mentors, find people to follow um, who can train you in the way um, of tabernacle building. Uh, you don't have to be omni-competent to serve, uh, just competent enough to be teachable. Last year, a few of us worked through an excellent book uh, called The Symphony of Mission, and it was really good because it had so many stories. Um, and so you weren't just reading ideas, you saw, you heard a lot of testimonies about the creative ways that people were uh, living their life on mission. But it included a really helpful chapter, which I'll try to put up on Slack um, as a PDF. Um, but it was on discovering vocation, and the chapter was called Listening, which is a great, I, a great starting word for this, um, listening. And the authors provided a tool called the vocational sweet spot. And it asked four questions. What am I good at? What do I care about? Where have I encountered brokenness in the world? What, where is my heart like particularly tender? What needs? And then what are the realistic circumstances of my life? And your vocational sweet spot is found somewhere in the intersection of that, those four questions. Um, and so we'll probably work through some of that in citizens' communities, just, just really suggestively, like just starting that conversation on, on answering those four questions. I especially appreciated the um, wisdom of including limits in this diagram, which is often not present. Um, they call them anchors, which is a way to uh, be 
kinder about them than I am uh, than I talk about my <laughs> limits, right? Um, but it's it's so wise because you know I have abilities, affections, and aches um, that I would love to employ uh, for God's kingdom, but I have limits. Um, also that, that c- close some doors, and you need to acknowledge that. Um, and those limits are given to me by God, uh, and, and they're given to direct me because God doesn't want me to do those things over there, even though it might line up with my abilities and um, affections and aches. Uh, that My limits are not something to rage against. It's not something that should cause me to just give up. Uh, my limits are part of my vocation. They're part of God's sovereign direction in my life, aiming my life in particular um, areas. Identifying anchors is an important factor to include when thinking about spiritual gifts. Another practical word on limits from the Exodus account is right before Moses calls the people to build the tabernacle, he reemphasizes the Sabbath, and he does that uh, sporadically throughout the tabernacle, Um, And you can imagine uh, if God were Pharaoh, he would say, this is the most important thing and you need to do it until it's done. But But they continue to practice Sabbath and they're called to stop this very important work every seven days. And that's because Moses knows there's danger in doing the Lord's work. Right? There's, there's danger in, in giving us that much dignity because we tell ourselves it's important, so important that we can't stop, that it's wrong to stop. We tell ourselves we're important, and so God's command to rest from our work doesn't apply to us, but God wants us to still honor the Sabbath even while doing his work, even while exercising spiritual gifts. It keeps us humble. It reminds us that while we might sow the seed and water the plants, it is God who gives the increase, and so we can stop every seven days and let him do that. Our use of our gifts should not lead to exhaustion. Our use of our gifts should not lead to pride. And remembering the Sabbath consistently helps us. A final word on creativity. In preparing the sermon art, Avery asked me for a title at the beginning of my preparation. And so before I had written even a word down, um, I told her the title was The Spirit of Freedom. Inspired by 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And in context, Paul is contrasting New Testament faith with Old Testament faith in in this story itself in Exodus 34, um, when the Israelites were unable and unwilling to look directly at the glory of God. Um, But because of the work of Jesus and because of the indwelling spirit, we are no longer constrained by fear. We're motivated by grace, and that sets us free. And what is true of the spirit should also be true of his gifts. That is, their exercise, our use of spiritual gifts should be marked by freedom because the spirit is a spirit of freedom. Uh, We already saw how the people were called to contribute gold, silver, and jewels, but not under compulsion. They were supposed to give freely. Uh, And we saw how the skilled men and women who helped build the tabernacle came forward because their heart was stirred. They came not under obligation, not under compulsion, but uh, from a sense of freedom. And that should be true of our use of the Spirit, too. Um, I feel like it's, it, sometimes conversations about spiritual gifts can result in guilt and shame, and that, is, that should not be true. Um, that need not be true, uh, because the Spirit of the Lord is a spirit of freedom. 
spiritual gifts should be given freely. It should be marked by joy and excitement and courage and creativity. And I, I want there to be a sense of play at Citizens, a sense of hope and confidence in the Lord that we just get to do this great thing that God is already doing. I want to have respect for God's instructions, of course, um, to uh, have an appropriate jealousy for God's glory revealed supremely in Christ. Um, Citizens Church can't just be and do anything at once, right? So falsehood is not freedom. Wickedness is not freedom. Ugliness is not freedom. Anarchy is not freedom. There is such a thing as truth, goodness, and beauty. There is a pattern after which we should model ourselves as a church. And yet, there is flexibility. There is an opportunity to be creative. The body of Christ shouldn't be stiff, right? Healthy bodies are not stiff. There should be some play in the joints, a limberness that adapts to its surroundings and seasons, And so what is that play for us right now um, as a small crew of people meeting in New Traditions Elementary School? What is the play? Where do we go? How do we live? That depends on the gifts God has given us today. That depends on the gifts God has given you and me. The tabernacle we build depends on what kind of artists we are. Do we paint in watercolor or pencil? Art deco or baroque? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so let us begin this year always with a sense of freedom. Of course, we are only free because of Jesus. Jesus is the word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And it was in his death that he removed the barrier between us and God, the sin which kept God's presence combined to one place. By his atoning death on the cross, he paid for our sin and purchased our freedom that we might have abundant life. He made it so that God could, again, dwell with us and us with God, permanently so, not dependent on our continued holiness or goodness or performance. His spirit will not leave this place. The opposite of freedom is fear. And sometimes spiritual gift conversations can inspire fear in us. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing it well? Am I doing enough? Am I enough? But 1 John 4 tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we have been perfected in love. There is no punishment. Spiritual gifts aren't about doing the right thing or being good enough. That is fear-based living. We are after love-based living, where we love God because God loves us, 1 John 4, 19. And so will you commit with me this year to exploring love-based spiritual gifts, freedom-based spiritual gifts, gifts that are expressions of freedom, grounded in delight, inspired by our overwhelming affection for God's glory and grace, our Christ-like love for his people, people in here and people out there who don't yet know that they are God's people. A freedom, a delight, an affection, a love which moves us to build sacred spaces for God to dwell with us so that others can enter in. Let's pray.